The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. This morning, we get to continue in the Ephesians series. Uh, it's always fun. I feel like this passage for me is always a tough passage. Um, and providentially, God had me preaching this passage on marriage. Um, since the beginning of January, y'all have been in Paul's letter of Ephesians, working through it. And Paul's been rooting you in the gospel, a beautiful gospel of grace leading to a beautiful life of grace. And this morning's passage on marriage is not really different. If, but if we're married or hope to be married one day, though we want we have some version in our mind of a beautiful marriage, we bump against the brokenness of the world. And because of that brokenness, it often feels like it's not true that marriages might be beautiful. Or we at least feel that way, even if maybe we think, okay, it could be that way, but it can't be that way for me. Some of us long to be married, but we're unmarried. Some of us have lost a marriage through death or through a divorce troubles and sin and baggage and brokenness or even illness plague our marriages and make it hard. Maybe a difficult child makes our marriages difficult. And as Paul writes in Ephesians about marriage in these 12, 14 verses, we can feel like, oh, maybe this is a how-to manual that will make me have a beautiful marriage. But if we look at the passage that way, it's actually going to create more hopelessness in us. Instead, I want us to think about this passage more in terms of the beautiful artist who created marriage, painting a beautiful picture of what marriage could be. And instead of a how-to manual beginning to be inspired of how do we see Christ at work in this passage and then at work in our marriages or in our future marriages. So, will you read with me this morning? I'm going to read verse 15 and then skip down to 21. Uh, This is Ephesians 5, so I'm going to read verse 15, then skip down to 21 through 33. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the husband submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does, the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Will you pray with me? 
Father, we want you to speak. Whether we are married or not, we have seen marriages struggle or fail, um, or even good marriages that need help, and we are looking for hope, and we ask that you speak this morning through your Spirit, your Spirit who lives in Christians, your Spirit who anointed Christ, your Spirit who inspired the writing of this passage. We ask that you would use Him to be our teacher and our guide, pointing us to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is this where he puts his water bottle? Is that, okay. It's like, is this, I hope this isn't a, like a sanctified stand. Okay. So it was uh, a long and difficult journey. There had been exhilarating moments, moments that took your breath away, people's breath away, beautiful scenery, beautiful passion that filled people with awe. There was laughter. There was tenderness. There was confessions of love that made people's hearts melt. And there was a moment of heartbreak that seemed to come out of the blue when Ben Higgins broke up with the Bachelor runnerette Jojo Fletcher <laughs> in March of 2016 to propose to some other girl. And that led to May of 2016 when millions of people turned on TV or checked in on Hulu to watch Jojo write her own story of love to enter her own journey of fulfilling love and marriage. She could choose between 26 good-looking, talented men who were madly in love with her, doting on her, falling over themselves and each other for her. Talented men. And for the course of several months, she would really get to live out many of our deepest existential fantasies, to be at the center of our own universe. And at the beginning of the first episode of The Bachelorette season 12, I think JoJo summed it up well. She said, I feel so blessed that all these guys are here for me. And I can hear in the midst of your chuckles, I can hear your groans in your, in your heads and in your hearts because some of you are like, man, everyone knows that's fake. That's just a show that's put on. Reality TV isn't real. And I think you're right. But I think deep down the reason that so many of us and so many people across the U.S. and really the world love that show is that it strikes a chord that all of us have, that we long to belong to someone. We long to belong to someone who will delight in us and be in love with us. And for many of us, that's marriage. I know more and more people in the Western world are foregoing marriage for long-term cohabitation. And I don't know if that's in a church crowd that is committed to coming to church on Sunday mornings at 9.30. That might not be you, but plenty of your neighbors or maybe even your children um, that's their mindset, that they want to forego the difficulties of marriage for long-term cohabitations. But maybe even some of you prefer that. But for many of us, we have dreamed of finding love and getting married since we were little. We hope, or we still hope, to find the perfect someone who's out there for us, to complete us, to meet us in our loneliness, 
to accept us as we are and not try to make us into someone who we're not. Maybe even some of you have experienced uh, a broken marriage where someone was trying to force you into someone you weren't through abuse. But we long to belong to each other. There's something in our imaginations about marriage. But we live in this culture that says you have to fulfill yourself and you have to use everything in your life to fulfill yourself. We grow up hearing things like follow your heart, follow your dreams, don't settle in your job, don't settle in love. And in some ways, those things can be somewhat true. We want to be authentic. We want to be passionate. But our whole lives have become about us. And like Jojo Fletcher, deep down, you and I believe that everything is really about me. Fulfilling myself. Your schooling was about making a better you to make a better life for you. Your career is either about making money so you can live a full life, or it's about finding a job that will make you fulfilled. Your kids' school and their extracurricular activities are to fulfill them or even to fulfill you as a parent as you watch them do these things. So it makes sense that we want spouses and marriages that give us fulfillment to prove our worth, to validate us. So what are ways that we try to make marriage fulfill us? I think one of the ways that a lot of people do is sexually. We want someone with whom we can experience deep physical intimacy, with whom we can experience the exhilaration of uniting our bodies together and not feel guilty about it because we're married. I know a lot of students that I work with at the university feel that way. Oh, if one day, once I get married, then I won't, have guilt, I won't feel guilty about it anymore. We want emotional fulfillment. We want someone who will like us and make us feel good about ourselves, who will cry with us when we're sad, who's going to laugh with us when we're happy. We want intellectual fulfillment. We want someone who will stimulate our mind, whether that's with books and the opera or trying to figure out where to put the deer stand to figure out where the deer is going to come so you can shoot the deer. At least that's what it was in East Texas. (laughs) We want relational fulfillment, someone who will be there for us, who will comfort us. But when we slow down and are honest with ourselves, all these things are really about me. But the difficult thing about marriage is that if you make it about you and your personal needs and personal fulfillment, it will kill your marriage. Some of you have experienced that or even experiencing that right now. You end up distancing yourself from your spouse because you're hurt and she or he is not fulfilling you in the way that you want. Or you'll try to move on to someone else because you think that they will fulfill you. So why does this not work? Because that's not how God created it to work. Because that's not who God is. God is selfless in His being. God is Trinity. He's an eternal community of unity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's been in an eternal relationship of love, self-giving love. He's always been outward-facing in His love. In outward-facing love, He created the world. In outward-facing love, He created human beings in His image to be reflecting His outward-facing love into the world. God created marriage as a picture of different persons becoming one. The Trinity is three persons as one, and marriage is two people who are different, a male and a female, as one. In our marriages, we reflect the Trinity. But sin 
is selfishness. It's becoming inward-facing, curved in on ourselves, destroying ourselves and going against the image of God that we have as human beings. We end up deserving God's wrath because His self-giving, outpouring love cannot stand that selfishness. By necessity, it can't because He is outward-facing in His love. So God, in His outward-facing love for the world, sent His Son, God the Son, into the world to lay down His life, to unite His people to Himself as His bride. And that was what Paul is saying in verse 23, where he says, the mystery is profound, that Christ is uniting, that Christ united Himself to the church by laying down His life. Marriage is a picture of His selfless uniting Himself to us. Because God is a God who created marriage as a picture of His selflessness and how He relates to us, we must pursue marriage, whether we're married or not married, and want to one day get married, selflessly. So I want us to think about marriage through a metaphor that can hopefully help us begin to think about marriage selflessly. It's a metaphor of going on a journey down a river with another person in a canoe, Both the people get in and, in a sense, join together as one. They're united together as one. If I get in a canoe with somebody else and I'm only thinking about myself and how this serves me, it will be, one, a miserable trip, and two, at times it could be a very dangerous trip and knock both of us out of the boat. So we must selflessly set expectations. We must selflessly sustain our marriages, and we must selflessly sacrifice our marriage idols. So those are the three points that we're going to look at this morning. So first, we must selflessly set expectation for our marriages. So going with the metaphor, imagine if you're setting expectations for a canoe partner in this way. Hmm, I need a list. A list of my best canoe partner. This person's going to have a strong J-stroke. This person's not too heavy. They won't rock the boat. They're fun on the river. They're not too light because that would mess up the balance with me in the boat too. They have awesome, sweet gear. They're good at spotting wildlife. They're good swimmers, so we can jump out and enjoy the water when it's calm water. They won't overpack. They'll remember to put on sunscreen. They won't whine when things get too difficult. They'll remind me to put on sunscreen so I won't get sunburned. If we start thinking like that, we think, that'd be ridiculous. Just pick a canoe partner. But that's what we so often do when we're setting expectations for our spouse even spouses that we're married to right now. So what are the expectations that you're setting on your spouse or that you're setting for a future spouse? One of the ways we do that is by thinking about compatibility. We want the perfect soulmate. However however we define that. We want someone with outward beauty who also intrigues us, who shares our interests, who's smart, who's funny, who's fit, who's disciplined, who's spontaneous. We want someone who's available to meet our needs, is always willing to be physically intimate when we want to be intimate, who's vulnerable, who's emotionally present, but won't get too mad when I'm not vulnerable and emotionally present. We want, if we're Christians, we want someone who's godly, however do we define godliness, but generally speaking, who pursues a relationship with God and encourages us to do the same. We want someone with not a lot of baggage in the relationship and who really likes us and helps us meet our life goals. 
we become consumeristic. The whole, the idea, so what is the ideal that you're shopping for? Maybe even, what's the ideal of the version of the spouse that you're com- currently married to? The ideal that you're looking beyond your spouse to, that's even them, but somebody else. We have some ideal person, and that becomes a dilemma. Kathy and Tim Keller, in their book on marriage, put it this way, or they said this, a marriage based not on self-denial but on self-fulfillment will require a low or no-maintenance partner who meets your needs while making almost no claims on you. Simply put, today people are asking far too much in a marriage partner. The ideal person doesn't exist. Even if you're married to someone you love, the ideal version of them doesn't exist. Because every person is sinful. Every person is, has baggage and is in process. You have baggage. They have baggage. When we begin to see marriage as something that's about selflessness, it frees us up to be honest about our brokenness. Look what Paul assumes in verses 25 and 27, through 27. He says, Husbands, love your wives as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church because the church is full of sinners. To selflessly set expectation for a spouse, we have to admit that we're sinful, not just in abstract ways, but in concrete ways. We have to admit that our spouse is sinful too and sins against us in concrete ways, not just abstract ways. This is a huge step towards faithful, uh, towards selflessness in marriage. Admitting that Christ had to come, He delighted to come, but He had to come for me. That He had to come for you. That He had to come for your spouse, too. When we're honest about our own sinfulness and our spouse's sinfulness, we're free to be honest about our baggage and their baggage. You're both works in progress, needing to be sanctified. That means needing to be made more holy, needing to be made more perfect like Jesus. You haven't arrived yet. I haven't arrived yet. That's very clear in my marriage. God is at work in us, growing us. If you're not married and are searching for a spouse one day, set expectations for someone who will admit that they're sinful, not just in an abstract sense, but in a concrete sense confessing their sins, confessing when they hurt you and asking forgiveness, but not just with you, but with other people who they're not trying to woo into a loving marriage. How do they treat other people in their life? How do they confess to other people in their lives when they sin against them? If you're married, if we're married, begin or continue to practice admitting out loud to your spouse and to your children and to other people with whom you're in relationship when you sin against them, confessing it, asking for forgiveness because you realize that Christ had to come for you and is still at work in you. And that means that there's plenty of room to confess. This, is, this forces out the false expectation that you're sinless, that your spouse is sinless, and that they're there just to meet your needs. Set the expectations that you are a sinner and your spouse is a sinner. So we also must selflessly sustain our marriage with our partner. In verse 21, 
Paul connects the passage I talked about last week to this passage. And he says, submitting one to another. What this is, is giving up your rights and your entitlements for the other person's good. So how do we do that? How do we begin to do that? We do it with a covenant, the covenant of marriage. Paul, Paul quotes God's word in Genesis 2, in verse 31. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's covenant language. Okay, so what's that? So an older version of English, some of you who grew up reading the King James Version, you remember the leave and cleave. So leaving is leaving your primary loyalty to your parents. And cleaving, I had, often some of us think like this, oh, cleave, what do I know? It's like a, a meat cleaver where you're chopping things. So it has something else to do with chopping things off. Had a student who has made a lot of sense when she realized, oh, that's not what that means. Cleaving is an older version of joining together. The root for the word in the Hebrew is like soldering something or gluing two pieces of metal together, two things becoming one. But it's also the same root for a word that is often used in the Bible or most often used in the Bible to talk about covenants. Where people make vows and promises to join together. Two kings, two different parties, Abraham and God, making promises and then joining together to unite as one. Throughout the Bible, Scripture talks about marriage as a covenant before God and witnesses. And most Christ, traditional Christian vows pick up the idea of there being God as a witness and other people as witnesses too. And so if you can think to either your wedding or someone else's wedding, you can think about there's two different sets of vows. The first is a set of vows really to God. It's the I wills part. The pastor asks, do you, Daniel, take this woman to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love, comfort, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, and be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And the answer is, I will. But when you're saying that, you're speaking to the pastor. You're not speaking to the other person who's standing right next to you. You're speaking to the pastor who is representing God to you. So God is your witness in the midst of that. Then after the I wills, the two make promises to each other saying something along the lines of, I, Daniel, take you, Brittany, to be my wedded wife, and I promise before God and these witnesses that I will be true to you, forsaking all others, keeping myself only for you from this day forward, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, to honor and to protect in the midst of all that God brings us, as long as we both shall live. These promises are to each other, and they're in front of witnesses. That's why marriage certificates require witnesses, so that people can say to you and remind you later on when things are hard, you made these promises to each other. That's also why when I'm dealing with college students, people are like, well, can't we just get married in our room? It's like, no, you can't because there needs to be witnesses. So what sustains the marriage in the midst of that covenant? It's the selfless promises Vows are promises to deny yourself to seek the good of the other person, to submit and to love by laying down your life. They're not just declarations of feelings or how that person, how you're promising something to that person right then, but they're future-oriented to the future version of your spouse and their future version of you. 
Because declarations of feelings are anchored in a time and a place, and they're really about meeting the other person's needs right then. Vows are what you promise to selflessly serve the other person from this day forth until you die. It's like when you're learning in math, it's the line that starts here, like at a dot, and then it's a vector, I guess, right? Is that, those of you who are math people? And that moves forward. It has a starting point, but it continues on. That's what vows are. You're continuing on forward in them. And this becomes the glue or the solder that unites the two. So when two pieces of metal come together to make a car part, they're welded together. And the importance is no longer just that one piece of metal or the other piece of metal. It's the two of them together. So as the car ages and as it has wear and tear on it, it's the welding point that holds them together. Your spouse will not be the same in 30 years or in three years, or maybe even three months. And some of you have experienced that. Some to your frustration, and I guarantee if it also to your spouse's frustration about you. If you're married, we get this. If you're thinking about marriage, I think you get this too. You, and that's what really scares you about maybe getting married to somebody, because you know that they're going to change. But vows taken seriously are dynamic enough to hold the baggage that was brought into the marriage, as well as the baggage that is brought into the marriage as you can go on, whether it's through your own sin, or maybe the sin of a boss, or sin of a parent, or sin of some other friend. Vows are dynamic enough to hold it. So how does that selflessly sustain marriage, though? Because the promises are future-oriented towards the person you're serving. They reorient how you will live and act based on how you have said you will act towards the other person in the future. Let's think of it like this. Let's say you have a free lunch one day and you are going to get lunch with a friend that you've been looking forward to spending time with. So you, after church, set a time on Thursday at noon, you're going to meet together at the Chick-fil-A. And you declare to each other the promises on your calendar, this is reserved for Pete at noon at Chick-fil-A on Thursday. And... This person says, I promise to show up there to meet you for lunch at Thursday at this time. And if both of you trust each other, that will affect how you plan and live out the rest of your week. You'll deny yourself freedom. You'll carve out time to see her or to see him. You'll not eat lunch ahead of time. You'll turn down other lunch offers. And when, the, and when you promise to do the same thing to that other person, they won't be left wondering and feeling anxious when you're a few minutes late because they know this person's going to show up because they said they're going to show up and I trust them. She won't eat her lunch early even if she finishes early in the morning from her schedule. Even if she's hungry. She won't take another lunch offer that morning if somebody else shows up before you do because she's promised to you and you've promised to her to be there for each other. You selflessly deny yourself other opportunities because you've made a promise to meet someone there at noon on Thursday. Let's think about the canoes again in the river. The canoes are the vows. The vows that you built together on your wedding day. They give you structure and support for floating down the river together. If you've promised not to leave the canoe partner, even when things get rough and you trust them, you know that they're not going to jump out of the canoe in the Class 6 rapids. You're going to stay together and see it through together. 
You don't have to worry about them abandoning you. Without vows, whether it's through cohabitation or through acting like you're married in other ways, when you haven't made vows, it's kind of like you're intertuning down a river together and you're holding on to the other person's tube together. But if they really annoy you, can you can push them to the other side of the river. Or if you run into heavy rocks and rapids, you end up having to let go to make it through. Vows are what put you in the boat together as a married couple. When you're in a romantic relationship without vows, you're always at some level trying to impress the other person to keep them from leaving. What vows should do, and I realize they don't always do this because we break each other's trust, but what they should do is provide a true safe place for us to be ourselves in all of our messiness and all of our brokenness. The safety should allow you and your spouse to grow in your ability to be vulnerable, to be naked, to be unashamed and unafraid as you relate to each other. Some of the moments when I've felt the most loved by Brittany have been in some really difficult times where I'm melting down in my anxiety, where I'm melting down because of the shame of my anxiety, and Brittany comes to to me in all of my brokenness and says, I love you. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. I know this is hard, but I'm here because she promised to do that. And those are the times where I actually feel most loved because she's living out her promises to me in the midst of that. It's in the deep darkness of our brokenness that the light of the other person's lived-out promises are the most comforting. All right, so what about wives submitting and husbands loving and laying down their lives? Okay, what's all that about? In this passage, both husbands and wives are selflessly serving each other. Wives submitting themselves to their husbands, husbands laying down their life for their wife. Both are selfless acts, a promise that my life is not my own, but it's for the life of the other person. You know, honestly, I don't know how that is supposed to look like in your marriage. I I can't give a broad statement of how that looks in marriage in general. But let's think of it like this. Let's go back to the canoe metaphor. If we think of the canoe again, the person in the front has to submit to the person in the back because that's how physics of boating work. The person in the back uses their oar, their paddle, like the rudder on a ship, and the rudder is in the back. So as they're steering on either side and paddling on either side, they're adjusting how the boat is going. And in really good situations, the person in the, shirt, in the front might never feel like the person in the back is steering. And pers- people on the outsides might never realize that the person in the back is somewhat steering. And that's partly because the person in the back trusts the other person in the front that they'll see things. The person in the back doesn't assume that they know what, how to get from point A to point B or that they can see all the rocks ahead. And they're trusting the sight and the vision and the communication of the other person. And they're actually inviting it. Another person might sometimes say, hey, we got to steer this other way. We're going to hit that rock. Or look out, there's someone on the, in the water right in front of us. Let's steer around them. So there's this trust and this working together. Together they work as a team to survive and enjoy the canoeing experience. The same is true in marriage, and I don't know how it's going to work out for you and your spouse, 
but you selflessly sustain your marriage together in this dance as a husband and as a wife, as a husband laying down his life through his vows in his love for his wife, and a wife loving her husband and submitting to him and respecting him. So what do we do about that right now on a Sunday morning once we leave church? If you haven't looked at your vows in a while, I'd encourage you to do that. Dig them up. If you can't find them or you don't remember them, look up traditional Christian vows and begin to think through those and think about the promises you made to each other. And where it's appropriate, confess to each other the ways that you haven't lived up to them, ways that you haven't honored or cherished the other person in difficult times and instead have slighted them and pushed them down. What are ways that you might actually need to extend forgiveness because you have felt that the other person hasn't cherished you or honored you or been faithful to you in a certain way? You made promises before you had children. Your promises were to each other, not your children. So how does that affect you now that you might have children? How do the particulars of having three kids, three young kids, display themselves? How do the vows display themselves to the particulars? How do, now that your kids have gone off and no lived at home, how does that affect the particulars of the vows? How does that manifest itself? How are you cherishing each other now? Because you're remembering that the vows are made between each other, not to your family, not to your children, but to you, each other, as spouses. If you're not married, practice following through on your word. Practice that now of keeping your word to someone else. Showing up when you say you're going to show up. And when it comes to friendship, submit yourself to other people in selfless love. Though you haven't made vows with someone else, practice submitting to your friends. Helping them grow and flourish, not trying to meet your needs by that friendship. What does it look like to you for, to lay down your life or to submit to another friend to help them flourish and grow? If you're able, I would encourage you, if you're not married, to live with roommates if you've never been married because that's more than one family culture having to live together and figure out and negotiate how to work things out. We also must selflessly sacrifice the idol of our marriage. We've got to sacrifice the belief that in our marriage we will find the deepest fulfillment that proves our worthiness and validates us as a person. Let's look at verse 21 again. Paul says, Submitting one to another out of reverence to Christ. To, real, to revere Christ is to realize that He is the chief above all things. He's the only thing that can fulfill us and make us right in the world. When we try to make marriage the thing that fulfills us, it will kill us and it will kill our marriage. Marriage will not prove that you are worthy. Instead, it will actually expose your sin and your selfishness more and more deeply. And some of you have experienced that. If you're making marriage into the thing that will fulfill you, it will become a cruel master over you. You are made to worship God and God alone. Only He can give you the deepest meaning in which you're looking for. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, that is true of you. You will never find fulfillment in anything but in worshiping the one true God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's listen to the difference in attitude when we make anything the thing. 
how that affects us. There's two different men who are doing the same thing, but one of them is finding his validity in the thing, and the other one his validity in Christ. In Chariots of Fire, two runners are contrasted. First, there's the secular Jewish man, Harold Abrahams. He summarized his view of running like this. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide with only 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. Some of us feel that way about marriage. Scottish Christian missionary Eric Liddell trusting that his validity, his justification came through Christ, summarized his view of running like this. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When you believe that you are justified by God's grace through Christ, it frees you to stop trying to prove your worth or validate yourself through your career through your parenting ability, through how your friends think of you admirably, through your children, and through your marriage. It will actually free you to be, in self, to be selfless because you will not have to be a slave to proving yourself. You become a slave to none and a servant to all, submitting yourself to your spouse, laying down your life for your spouse. So how do we grow in knowing God's pleasure? How do we grow in our desire to revere Christ? Look at verse 26. It's where Christ presents his bride pure and spotless, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And then look down at verse 29. Husbands are called to nourish and cherish their wife like Christ does the church. And I think these are related. At its basic level, the washing of the word points to the good news of Jesus. The whole of God's word, the scriptures, point to the gospel of grace in Jesus. Everything points to Christ. As married people, we are to help our spouse grow in revering Christ by watching each other in the gospel of grace. Husbands, this is your goal as a husband. This is your purpose as a husband. Cherish her by helping your wife to know more deeply than she did yesterday or than she did 10 years ago, that Christ came for her. Through your actions, loving her as Christ loved the church, with your words, speaking the truth of God's grace in the context and the conflicts of marriage, reminding her that she is eternally God's beloved daughter and she is a member of the bride of Christ. Wives, respect your husbands enough to remind him, even in the midst of conflict, that though he is sinful, he has the dignity as a son of God. Call him to live into that dignity as a son of God who has been bought with the price of Jesus' blood. Help your spouse to grow by helping your spouse to know the good news of God's love for her, the good news of God's love for him. Marriage is a canoe on a journey down a river. You're bound together. So we set our expectations that you're both sinners in need of God's grace. You sustain, we sustain our relationship with your spouse by reminding each other that the promises that you made put you in the boat together and you are together. We sacrifice our idol of marriage by revering Christ more than we revere our marriage and helping the other person do the same. 
And that's the beautiful and scary reality that at a certain point you will break your partner's trust and they will break your trust. You're going to be selfish and look only out for your interests. You'll get angry when they're not meeting your needs. You'll ignore him or her when they, when you need them most. And they'll do the same. And this is where we got to realize and we begin to realize and deeply need to realize where marriage points us. Paul is saying that it's a mystery that points us to Christ and the church. If you're a Christian, that's you. That through, throughout his relationship with his people, God knows what it's like to be betrayed, ignored, abandoned, despised, and even cheated on. That's the story of the whole Old Testament. It's also the story of Christ, who in relationship with his disciples watched them fight about who was his favorite. But he also experienced one of his closest friends betraying him and all his other close friends denying him and running away. But still hung on a cross and said, it is finished. All of their sins, all of their selfishness, all of your sins and all of your selfishness is paid for. He's the great husband who'd laid down his life to the point of death on a cross. He's the great husband who has promised to return one day for what the Bible calls the great wedding feast when we will in great intimacy and vulnerability enter into true relationship with a God who will completely satisfy our deepest needs and our deepest longing to belong. Those are the vows that your heavenly husband has made to you and he will keep them. Will you pray with me?